something I've noticed in the past year um, during, the, during the pandemic is you know, trends change and people get into new hobbies. One of the hobbies that has really blown up that was somewhat surprising to me has been collectibles. Uh, often kind of nerdy, geeky collectibles like comic books, Pokemon cards, um, all these sort of old 90s, 80s-ish uh, pop culture trends have really taken hold, and people are selling old comic books uh, and, yeah, even Pokemon cards for hundreds of thousands of dollars right now. The demand for these is shockingly high. Um, cards that were considered valuable a few years ago have doubled or tripled in price. People seem to have some... People, people with this kind of... Maybe, maybe my age who have a surprising amount of disposable income are really, really into these things. Um, and if you've ever watched, if you, maybe, you maybe you collected baseball cards or stamps, maybe you've watched Antiques Roadshow, you know that, that collectibles uh, can, yes, be worth an immense amount of money, but only in the right conditions, right? So I have, I've got Pokemon cards at home from when I was a kid. They're worth nothing. I'm sure that you all have baseball cards or comic books or other things from when you were a child or, or maybe from more recently. Um, but I doubt they're really worth the kind of money that some of the rarer or more valuable things are going for right now. And it's because, you know, like the cards I have are not from the very first original print run. And none of them are in good condition. We played with them. They were toys, right? They're bent. They're uh, scratched. They're dirty. Um, maybe you've seen an, an episode of Antiques Roadshow where they tell you the whole history of this piece and say, if it was from this year and not that year, and if this piece weren't just chipped a little bit, it would be worth $500,000. But in this condition, it's worth 100 bucks. And the, the difference that a few things can make is astounding. The vast majority of collectibles are worth nothing. And the very few are worth a lot. Most are disqualified. Their faults rule them out. This morning, Paul warns the Colossians to let no one disqualify them. To let no one disqualify them to have full confidence and assurance in the sufficiency of Jesus and their faith in his gospel. Jesus is not a collector seeking out value. He is a restorer, a lover, a friend, and a king we'll see in this passage how Christ treats us and shows us what our true value is. In Colossians chapter 2, we're reading in verse 6, verses 6 through 23. Uh, it'll be on the screen, but you can join along uh, with me with your own Bible. So let's read together from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 23. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's word. Paul covers a lot of ground here in these verses, and, and if you've been following along with us in the book of Colossians, you might notice how all of Paul's thoughts and ideas have just run together in the course of this book. Um, Jamie opened us up with a sermon on spiritual maturity and Paul's prayer uh, for the Colossians, praying that they would, would grow up um, to be mature believers. This is immediately caught up again here in the beginning of this, uh, this uh, section that we just read. Paul uses a, uh, a natural, organic analogy, right? Like a plant, rooted, with roots that go deep, built up, established. He uses another one later on uh, in verse 19, where he talks about Jesus as if he is the head of a body, and the whole, who, who nourishes the whole body, which is knit together with joints and ligaments, a body that grows the way a child grows into an adult. Spiritual maturity is Paul's concern throughout the letter. And that is, again, a concern here in this passage. He's also concerned with the supremacy, the sufficiency, and the exceptionalness of Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Messiah. When I preached a couple weeks ago from uh, first, chapter 1 again, uh, verses 15 through 23, we talked about the beauty the beauty and exceptionalness of Jesus and the gospel he has for us. Paul said he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created. And everything that was created was created by him and for him. Jesus is all in all. He is preeminent, exceptional. So those themes all come together again here. And they come along with a warning a warning against false teaching, a warning against believing false teaching, but also a warning against being accused and um, disqualified, is the word that he uses in verse 18. Disqualified by false 
unnecessary additions to the faith that Paul has shared with them. So, starting in verse 6 and 7, right, Paul says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, received from Paul. Paul hasn't visited the Colossians, but his ministry has planted their church. He knows and has ministered with um, the man who did share the gospel with them. Paul knows the gospel that they've received. It's the gospel that, that he shared. Um, that he summarizes here, that Jesus died for sins, canceled the record of debt, and rose again by the power of God from the dead. So just as you've received that idea, that good news, that revelation, walk in him. Paul's first, first statement to them in this section is a command to walk, to act in a manner worthy of Jesus. Paul uses this, this statement, walk in him, walk in a manner worthy, in, al- in almost all of his letters. It is one of the things he really likes to say. You'll remember when we were in the book of Acts, the Christians referred to um, their community as the way. The way, a people who are not just believe an idea, but who behave in a certain way, who walk in a manner that is consistent with the Lord that they believe in and worship. The characteristic that most, I think, most stands out to me in this section in particular is that of humility. That of humility. We'll continue to, as we continue to read, I'll explain why and how we get to humility in this particular passage. But again, Paul uses that organic analogy. Be rooted. Grow. This is not just an idea. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of being and acting. Though most of what Paul is going to talk about is right belief and right thinking in this section. We cannot forget that we are not simply thinkers, but we are doers, living and active beings. And so, What Paul wants us to see is, again, the sufficiency of Christ over and against insufficient false teachings and human traditions. So he mentions a few of these. So he has philosophy, empty, deceitful philosophy, human traditions. Going down at the end, he brings up some more, starting in uh, verses um, 16 here. Questions of food or drink and the worship of angels and asceticism. Asceticism is severity, right? self-severity. Um, so excessive fasting, a physical discipline, uh, total denial of, of, of physical pleasures. That is the idea behind asceticism. So extreme regulations and rules that one sets upon themselves for a variety of purposes. So what Paul is saying is all of these things, whether it's whether philosophy, whether tradition, whether regulation, whether other spiritual revelations and, and different forms of worship, not all of these things are distractions from and are insufficient compared to Jesus. Paul is very concerned with Jesus' exclusivity. So what Paul isn't saying is that All philosophy that comes from any source other than me and our tiny community is evil and wrong and we reject it all. Paul is happy and and eager to quote Greek philosophers and scholars. We saw this in the book of Acts when Paul is trying to do evangelism to the Greek people. He 
um, he does. He quotes them. He quotes them positively. He reminds. He says to them, "Look, God is near to you. You don't have it, but but you're close." Similarly, Paul is does not despise tradition. In fact, he has in sharing the gospel and establishing a church has given them new traditions, one tradition of which we will participate in this morning when we share in the Lord's Supper. Not all tradition should be rejected and totally ignored. Similarly, Paul is concerned with maturity and will consistently uh, endorse and encourage the Colossians and the other churches he writes to to practice the spiritual disciplines, to grow in prayer, to fast, um, we, we spent a, a good amount of time on the spiritual disciplines earlier this year, and you'll remember one of the ones we talked about was fasting, which could be, if, you're, if you read this in a certain way, it se- could seem like Paul is saying it's totally worthless and terrible. But no, he, he's trying to put all of these things in their proper place, which is underneath Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus, he calls him the head of the body the first thing, the thing from which all nourishment and growth flows. And so all of these things can have their value, but any of them that rival or supplant Jesus and his gospel must be rejected because they will lead to captivity, to self-harm, to futility, and to death. It is a harsh warning from Paul. Don't, don't practice this false teaching. Don't be deceived by it. The same, these same kinds of temptations are all around us in the world today. So the, the, the two main competing ideas were Greek philosophy and um, Jewish tradition, right? We're going to follow the Sabbath the way we always have. We're going to practice circumcision the way we always have. So... Greek believers, men who have come to Christ, time to be circumcised. Yeah, we're going to physically alter your body in an extremely painful way. Um, This circumcision, it's so strange to us. This comes up a lot in the New Testament, though, because this is a huge deal. Do Greek men who become Christians need to be circumcised? Paul says, no, no, they do not. Uh, And we'll talk about baptism, circumcision in just a moment. But even today, so you can, you know, self-help gurus are everywhere. Um, competing value systems from whether, whether you want to put it in political categories of right and left, whether you want to put it within the church of progressive and fundamentalist. There are so many extremes that want to say everything from the world is good and great and we should just accept it and synchronize our faith with what we see. Everything in the world is evil and terrible and we have to reject it all. We have to come together into our tiny, isolated community as the only way to honor God. And we, we are so, it is so easy when you put the world into those extreme categories. This is evil. This is good. I'm going to focus on what is good and cancel out everything else. And we do have to practice discernment. But when we, when we allow ourselves to fall into that extremely bifurcated black and white way of thinking, we will fall, unfortunately, into the same patterns, I think, that Paul is warning against. Um, the, 
the uh, faction in this church that is advocating for very strict aestheticism, a strict um, maintenance of the Jewish traditions like the Sabbath, um, they almost certainly see things in that way. We are called out, chosen, and separated completely from everything else. Um, and that idea becomes not just a wise practice, but a source of salvation itself. Right? And that's, what, that's the problem with all of these things. Can be good in the right place, but can easily become their own source of salvation. The other, you've heard us many times talk about legalism and lawlessness. Um, you wanna, if you wanted to pick and choose verses of the Bible to support one of those two extremes, you could definitely find them, right? But when you read Paul and you read Jesus in the, in the fullness of what they have to say, um, you are forced into a position where, yes, holiness and maturity in Christ, right? walking in him. There is a right way as a Christian to live your life. Um, and yet, at the same time, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, new moon festivals, Sabbaths. Um, don't let people who, who claim they've had spe- exceptional visions disqualify you when you haven't had them. Um, there are infinite examples of, of things whether within the church or outside the church, that we have elevated to this level, sources that we can use to disqualify others. And this is where we start to get to the idea of humility. Let's get into this, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. Because this is what starts to happen in a church like like in Colossians, where there are so many potential false teachings and a lack of clarity on what is first and what is true. Everyone starts to try to discredit the other. I'm the real Christian and you're not because I, fo- I practice the Sabbath rightly. I'm a real Christian and you're not because you're deceived by pagan philosophy. I'm, I'm a real Christian and you're not because I know what I can and can't eat and you eat whatever you want. Don't you see how foolish that is? And within those things, we do we will disagree. There are, there are you know, questions of whether something is wise or whether something is right. And then there are questions of whether something gives you salvation or not. Whether something unites you with Jesus. And again and again, Paul wants us to see the only thing that unites us with Jesus is our faith in his gospel. And so what faith leads to is described very clearly for us in verses 11 to 15. So going back up to that section, let's, I'm just going to read that again together. 11 to 15. In him, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame 
by triumphing over them in him. Okay. Circumcision was a practice that God affirmed and gave to the Israelite people by which male members of this covenant community that God had created marked their own bodies as a reminder that they belong to God. It is a sign of God's covenant with that people. And so this was a huge question for the church. Uh, we, we have a covenant with God. Shouldn't we show that? Shouldn't we like, keep that tradition alive? And Paul says, no. No, the circumcision is, as other things, a shadow of the things to come. That's verse 17. A shadow of the things to come. Jesus, when he, when he, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, when he died and rose again, he said, I am instituting a new covenant, a new covenant in my flesh. One of the promises that Jesus fulfilled from the Old Testament is described in Ezekiel chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What Jesus and what Paul are saying is that promise, the new covenant, is realized in Jesus. And so the, the old sign, the circumcision, is no longer necessary. No, we are united with Christ. And this is exemplified for us in baptism. Baptism is not just for men, but for men and for women, for anyone who has faith. Uh, it is not an act that physically transforms you or marks you forever. Um, and it symbolizes for us that we were buried with Jesus, dead. He died, we died. And yet, risen from the dead, we also are raised with him. So he says, the uncircumcision of your flesh, in verse 13. This is the thing that we get rid of in faith. Paul uses the word flesh a lot to talk about sin. See, Paul doesn't think that our physical bodies are evil or, or worthless, but Paul uses the analogy of the physical body in this way to talk about how sin is part of us. Sin lives within us. It has stained us. Right? This is what Ezekiel's talking about. You need a new heart. You need a new heart. You need my spirit because you are sinful, tragically broken. And so what Paul means by that is that the old way of living, again, the, the way you used to walk, is dead. The sinful part of you, when you have faith in Jesus, is dead. He, he takes this further this is nailed to the cross. He uses visceral language. Right? This, to, for us, you know, nailed to the cross, we're, we're really used to talking about crucifixion and, and death because we worship Jesus and that's how he died. Um, but people don't get crucified anymore. And none of us have ever had to see that happen. Crucifixion was tragically common, brutal, and horrible. For Paul to use this, this phrase here, it's, it would be troubling. Um, it would be like if I described a gory injury to you. Um, 
which I, I will refrain from doing. Um, but he's, he really wants to make this point very clear. Anything, both the, the old way of living and the record of debt, all of the, all of the legal status that sin uh, gave us, the, the, the disconnection from God, the demands for sacrifices, the demands for even death because of sin, those things are gone. He has forgiven us all our trespasses. The record is nailed to the cross. Finally, he says the thing that, that has been accomplished by Jesus, the thing that we put our faith in, is that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God triumphing over them in Jesus. Uh, rulers and authorities refers to spiritual beings and spiritual forces that exist in the world. This is, a, this is another strange thing for us. We're not accustomed to thinking about the world in this way. The people that Paul is writing to are. They're asking different questions than we do. And so Paul answers them. And we need to not necessarily adopt this way of thinking and, and think about, how, about spiritual forces underneath and behind everything and create superstition and fear in ourselves. That's actually the exact thing Paul is trying to get rid of in the Colossians. But we do need to recognize that there is a spiritual reality and that Jesus has triumphed over anything and everything in that reality that is evil or contrary to God. And this was a great comfort to the Colossians who were tempted to worship elemental spirits, even to worship angels, to be reminded, no, nothing Nothing in the spiritual realm, no, no spiritual tradition, no Greek mysticism, none of these things, none of these things hold a candle to Jesus. He has triumphed. He has triumphed. Baptism is a great example of letting no one disqualify you. In baptism, we, we humbly accept and confess that we are sinful, that we needed to die with Jesus, that we did have a record of debt that is nailed to the cross. The method, mode, and timing of baptism is one of the things that Christians have fought about the most in the past, in the past thousand years. Christians have literally killed each other over whether or not children or adults should be baptized. We, you may have had a, a hard debate about this one or t- once or twice in your life, but I don't think you've ever felt that deeply about it. And so in our church, in our practice, one of the ways we fulfill this advice by Paul is we have a very clear practice for baptism. When people confess faith as, as adults and believers, we baptize them in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We believe that this is consistent with the teaching of the New Testament and is good. And yet, I do not pass judgment or disqualify anyone who was baptized as a child with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I do not seek to use the tradition that I am most faithful to to disqualify another believer. Let no one disqualify you. If we are to be believers who build one another up, who encourage one another, and yes, convict and challenge one another when we're wrong, we have to have the posture of humility that all of us 
have confessed in our faith and in baptism. Baptism is not simply an act of obedience whereby you proclaim your faith. No, in baptism, you are, you are marked by God. It's, it's like the ring that I wear on my finger. Right, this ring, if you're married, you've got one. I can't get it off. Um, this ring is not my ring. Think back to a wedding ceremony, right? This is Katie's ring. This is my wife's ring. During the ceremony, she gave it to me and said, um, <laughs> I give you this ring as a symbol of my vow, and with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when I wear this ring and I look at it, it's not a symbol of my vow to Katie. That's, what, that's, the, that's the ring that she wears that I gave to her. This is the ring, this is a symbol of Katie's vow to me. It reminds me that she has committed and covenanted to me. In baptism, there is no exchange. In faith, there is no exchange. We have nothing to give God, no equivalence to offer in response. No, God has committed, had covenanted to us at the great cost, right? He was literally nailed to a cross, died, and was, re was resurrected. We belong to him. Our baptism, our faith, is utterly and completely humble. No one can disqualify you. None of us are qualified to begin with. Jesus is not a collector who has found some really great pieces that he's gathered together in this room. No, all of us are bent and broken trading cards, comic books with the covers ripped off and dug out of the mud. Jesus is not a collector. He is a restorer, a lover, a king. No, Paul told us again in, in, in Colossians 1, Everything that was made was made through him and for him, including you. You were made by Jesus for Jesus, and he died for you so that you would know that, so that you could believe it, so that you could be transformed by it, rooted deeply and established in that faith, so that you would grow up and abound in thanksgiving. Jesus is sufficient where nothing else is. He has conquered even, even the things that we do not, even, do, not, do not fear and do not understand. The depth and extent of what he has done for us is infinite and awesome. And so, we must be humble, seeking not to disqualify one another, insisting on extra traditions, actions, or exceptional teachings and visions, but holding fast to Jesus and his gospel. Faith is like that. It doesn't matter how much you have. It's like getting on a plane some people get on a plane, they're terrified the whole way there. They cover their face, they shake in their seat. Some people get on a plane and take a nap, read a book, like it's, like it's nothing else. 
Some people have more faith in the pilot and the plane than the others. But they're all on the plane. They all get where they're going. And that's true. Some of us have grown more than others, are more mature than others, have a deeper faith than others. We're all on the plane. We're all going to the same place. And if we are more mature than than someone else, let us have the humility not to seek to disqualify them, but to come alongside and help them grow, to connect them more closely and more deeply to the head, to Jesus from which all of that growth, maturity, and wisdom come. The hymn, and can it be, captures this idea quite beautifully. I'd like to to read a, a section of it for us. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Both I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. May we all have the humble faith that though we were sinners, Christ died for us. He made a way for us. And he has brought us together to be his people. One last thing, every you in that, in that passage is plural. Every single one. So these commands, these encouragements are for us as a community, not simply as individuals. We are growing together, united together. Let's praise God for that and pray for his blessing. God, I pray that you would help us to see all the more the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is ours, that you would help us to hold fast to the faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, that we would be able to wisely see the value of things like fasting or of the traditions of the world, but to always and in every way subject them to your authority and your exceptionalness. Help us not to seek to disqualify one another, but to encourage, bless, and help one another so that as Paul prayed for the Colossians, we too would grow in maturity, in wisdom, in joy, and in thanksgiving. Lord, we are your people, and you have accomplished this. We worship you, we praise you, and we love you. Amen. Do you stand?